0: Back to Matthew's Gospel, we return this morning to chapter 16 again, and there to pick up at verse 21. This is at page 822 in your Pew Bibles, if that's helpful for you. Last week we pointed out that we've come to a watershed in Matthew's Gospel. Here at Caesarea Philippi, the disciples have evidently arrived at a new understanding, or at least a new level of understanding. Concerning the identity of the one who stands before them. Jesus is, as Peter said, as the mouthpiece of the disciples, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. Well, now that they own him as Messiah, Jesus has some shocking news for them about his Messiahship, about the nature of. Of it. And rising from this revelation of the nature of his messiahship comes an equally shocking description of the nature of their, indeed, of our discipleship. Dear flock, let's pray. Father, we ask that you will help us to receive your word and to receive it rightly and well. We have become. Familiar with its truths, and that is both a high privilege and also a great danger. We would, Father, that your Spirit should open our hearts and give us new eyes to receive marvelous things from your law, to be braced uh, by your law, to be spurred to new obedience by the commandments that our Lord Jesus Christ has laid out for us here. Because we would be everything that our Savior has given everything for us to be. We ask it in his name. Amen. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to... Show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord! This shall never happen to you! But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan! You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I suppose that before I begin, I should address that, that last verse, what we've just read in verse 28 about some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It will not receive any significant treatment in the rest of the sermon this morning, but some will be waiting for the entire sermon to hear what that means, and I don't want you to be disappointed. Uh, I fear, however, that you may be disappointed by my answer anyway, which is this. I'm not altogether certain (laughs) what Jesus means by that. Uh, As you might imagine, there's been a whole lot of debate about what Jesus means, Good men have offered several interpretations of the sighting of the kingdom of which Jesus speaks here. They include the transfiguration, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, Pentecost, the spread of Christianity, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the second coming. I will say that it seems most likely to me in view of the context that Jesus is referring to the transfiguration, which Matthew virtually links to this account in the very next verse. If you think about it, only some of those with him when he made that remark were witnesses of his glory on the mountain. There's Peter and James and John. The rest saw nothing like this to the rest of their lives, to the end of their lives. And what those three saw may certainly be described as the sight of the kingdom. At any rate we'll be back to the transfiguration next time, Lord willing, for for now I have a question for you. Remember Jesus had a question for you last time, what who do you say that I am? And how you answer that question we saw last week determines the outcome of your life, both now and in the world to come. Now my question for you this morning is this, what difference does that answer to Jesus' question make in your life today? If you answer with Peter, and I certainly hope you do, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, then how does, how must that affect your life, affect your life in this world, and right now? Jesus explained what it meant for him that he is the Christ. It meant that he would suffer not only in death, but already in life. He was suffering. Even at this point at Caesarea Philippi, his lively imagination, his sharp mind anticipates the wrath that waits in store for him to fall upon him in our place. And his burden, and let us not doubt that already now it was excruciatingly heavy on his heart is made the heavier by Peter's heavy-handed rebuke. No, Lord, no. No, this couldn't happen to you. The rock in one breath, turning into a stumbling stone, an instrument of Satan in virtually the next. And in the meantime, as we heard him say back in chapter 8, he has no place to lay his head. He lives, as we've seen, dependent on the help of others. He himself holds title to all creation. And he's dependent on the help and the charity of others. On top of that, he is the object of the vitriol, the hatred, the anger, and the rejection of the very church of his day. The ones he came to save. He is accused. Jesus is, of all people, is accused of being demon-possessed. He's called a glutton. He's called a drunkard. He who loves the Lord's day better than anyone ever did and keeps it that way is accused of being a Sabbath-breaker. Even those who claimed to love him quickly rose in anger against him, calling and clamoring for his crucifixion, seeking a murderer. For freedom instead, Barabbas. That, according to Jesus, and to the shock and dismay of his disciples here, is what it means that he is the Christ. The Messiah conquers, yes, but in a way that none of them that day could have possibly dreamed. He conquers by stooping. The kingdom of God triumphs. Through bloody and bludgeoned suffering. Now then, what must it mean for us as Christians? As Christians? That's what I mean by my question. If Jesus is indeed the Christ of God, then how must that truth govern your life right now? Jesus answers the question for you if you have any doubt. Verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In three parts, Jesus summarizes the terms of discipleship, of our calling, yours and mine, dear ones, of the life of those who would properly and legitimately call themselves, consider themselves Christians. There are, after all, many people, of course, you know this, who take the name Christian to themselves. There's a vast difference between those who merely take the name and those who live the life, who are indeed His disciples. Years ago, I was the one who went to the the store, the supply store, to pick up the janitorial supplies the cleaners and the garbage bags and the toilet paper for the church. Back then, the supply house was located on J.R. Miller Boulevard, and alongside the place, there's a narrow alley where uh, semi-truck drivers would back long trailers in and and drop their loads. And what what made it so impressive, or even more impressive, is that they backed those trailers off of J.R. Miller blindside, which means they backed the trailer into the alley, turning the tractor <coughs> to the passenger side, depending almost entirely on instinct, and a little tiny sliver of the convex mirror on the passenger side of the cab without the benefit they would other enjoy, otherwise enjoy of hanging their head out the window and looking right down the side of the trailer. Now, the lady behind the counter there was explaining all of that to me, and uh, went on to inform me that that, she said, is the difference between a trucker and a person who just drives a truck. You know, no doubt some, some truck driver, some driver of a truck, some self styled trucker, you know, had at some time explained this distinction to her. Uh, to genuinely hold the honored moniker of trucker, she meant there is a life to live. There's a price to pay. There's a skill to master. There's, there's a lifestyle, so to speak, not just the accoutrement of a tractor, a trailer, and a commercial driver's license. Well, So it is with Christianity. There are Christians who merely possess the accoutrement, you know, the trappings of Christianity. They have a Bible and And maybe they're even members of a local church. And they can say things, perhaps say things in in Christian ways with Christian words. You know, they can speak Christianese with skill. Lots of people are good at that, especially here in the Bible Belt. And then, and then there are Christians. They have the trappings too, but they also have the life. They genuinely and legitimately bear the title because they possess the reality. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. These three capture the nature of genuine Christian discipleship. Deny himself, take up his cross follow Jesus. Look at them with me. First, a genuine Christian, one who would truly come after Christ, denies himself. Right off the bat, a genuine Christian, one who would come after Jesus, runs directly across the grain of our culture, doesn't he? Because I am worth it. You remember that line, right? Of course you do. It's worked so well. It still is for a sales slogan. It has for decades because that is our zeitgeist. That is the spirit of our age. Self-indulgence, grabbing all of the gusto we can get because I'm worth it. These are the driving forces of our culture, of our day. Years ago, I heard some psychologists on a talk show... Advising a young, young man, he called in. He was considering a divorce. She, doesn't, she just doesn't make me happy anymore, he complained. The counsel they give, or gave, if she doesn't make you happy, then it's time to part ways. And I kid you not, the next line, your personal happiness is the most important thing. Alas, that philosophy of life is also altogether too often at home within the walls of the church. Where is the self-denial in that? The strong language Jesus uses here for those who would come after him speaks of total self-forgetfulness and the rejection of anything and everything that displeases God. It means not living for ourselves, but living for another, living completely and specifically for Christ. It means finding our satisfaction, not in pampering ourselves, not in lining our own nests, but in self-forgetful service to Christ in others, in neighbor, in lover, in child, in aging parent, in friend, in enemy. Is that not exactly what He has done for you? Is that not what the cross has meant first for Him? He who by all rights could have you know, enjoyed glory forever, unbroken, instead denied Himself heaven, To come to earth and here denied himself the pleasures of sin perfectly to obey the law. Denied himself ease to walk the dusty trails of earth. Denied himself comfort to endure pain and spiritual horror in life and in death. For you, for you and for me, utterly has given himself for us just as you prayed a few moments ago. May we give ourselves, as we prayed also a few moments ago, entirely to Him. Brothers and sisters, we're not here on this earth to get, but to give. We're not here to be served, but to serve. We're not here to collect and hoard up all that we can of our lives, but to spend our lives on Christ, who is with us now, all around us in the form of others. We're not here to make ourselves comfortable. We're here to pour ourselves out as offerings to God. First, Jesus says, deny yourself. Second, Jesus says, take up your cross. Now, has it occurred to you that he could not have chosen a grislier, more horrific image or description than this? You know, today our crosses do what? They, they float up on the walls weightlessly, don't they? They dangle from, so daintily and lightly from gold and silver necklaces. Not so in Jesus' day. The cross was repugnant. I could repeat to you stories this morning in detail of the crucifixions in Roman-occupied Palestine in Jesus' day that would turn your stomachs. I don't think I need to do that to, for you, to, uh, you, for you to understand how shocking it was for them to be told by Jesus that if they would come after him, if they want to follow him, they must come after him on that one-way path that they had watched so many others take to their own execution, dragging the very instrument of their death with them symbol of the hated Roman occupation, a form of death so cruel, so dehumanizing, so shameful it is that even the most debauched regimes in human history since have not employed the crucifixion as a means of executing enemies. It was the preeminent means of the Roman terror apparatus to liken the following of Christ to bearing the cross was as powerful a way as could be imagined to say that a man or a woman, boy or girl had to be willing to sacrifice everything and anything to be a follower of Jesus. This means so much more about brothers and sisters than undergoing the common trials of life. This is not the kind of people, the kind of thing that people are always talking about these days, you know, sighing, oh well, it's just a just a cross I have to bear, I guess. You know, this is suffering for his sake. This is the sacrifices, these are the sacrifices that we make for his kingdom. Really, it's just a stronger way to say deny yourself. It's putting your own interests away, putting them in the back, and replacing them with the priorities of God. With serving God, with might and main, come wind, come weather, come pain, come criticism, come loneliness, come shame. Johnny Erickson Tada, who knows a thing or two about suffering, has undergone more of it as a quadriplegic person than most. She's made a study of suffering and has come to understand the differences between garden variety irritants and the cross. She writes, I have learned that it is a passion for God that will give you a passion for people. And this utter delight in Him will come from the toughest of trials that you're about to face. Our affliction becomes that which pushes and shoves us down the road to The cross. And that's what it means to become like him in his death. Don't think that the cross is simply a wheelchair or an irritating job or an irksome mother-in-law. The cross is the place where you die to sin and live to God. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and third. Follow him. You know what more can be said? Following Jesus means following him even unto death. It means that he has everything of you. He has your heart. He has your soul. He has your mind. He has your strength. He has your body. He has your motives. He has your thoughts, your passions, your loves. All of them governed by him. All of them given to him. Completely and utterly and sincerely. Did he do without certain things that he might legitimately have enjoyed for the sake of the kingdom? Well, then so must we. Did he miss things that he might otherwise have enjoyed so that God, his Father, would be served? Then so must we if we are following him. Was he rejected? So will you be if you follow him. Was he ridiculed? Was he beaten? Was he spat upon? You can't walk the same path with him. You can't follow Jesus down the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering without some of that spittle finding its way to you and landing on you too. All who would be godly, must suffer. Now I know personally of ways that you have followed Christ and, and that you have known the ridicule of your neighbors that you have faced and overcome the ethical dilemmas of your workplace courageously. I've seen you and I have admired you. That is one of the great I'd say privileges of being your pastor these many years. I have the privilege of watching you obey God, of you taking up your cross, denying yourself and following him at great cost to yourself. I've seen you do this. I've seen you put resources into God's hands that you could have spent on any number of pleasures for yourself. because discipleship required it of you. I've seen you make, I could list the sacrifices, but rest assured of this, dear flock, rest assured of this, there is a great trade-off in all of this. There is a great trade-off. It strikes us at first as paradoxical, doesn't it? And Jesus wants you to wrestle with this. He wants you to turn this over and over and wrestle with it until you have revealed the pearl that is within verse 25. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The only way for you to find your life is to look. In other words, when you organize your life not around self-preservation, self-advancement, not around taking care of number one first, your own pleasure, your own entertainment, your own success, but on the cause of Christ, on the glory of God, then you find life. Real life, genuine life, pure life, joyful, happy life in the truest sense. Then you come to know the deep and abiding satisfaction, no matter the outward circumstances, of God's pleasure, of God's fatherly smile on you. Missionary martyr Jim Elliott wrote famously in his journal, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. He gave it all, you remember, and he died, Elliot did, in 1956 at the end of Indian Spears in Ecuador while bringing the gospel to his own assassins. That day he learned the real meaning of his words, though. Isn't this a thought? He's still waiting with all the other saints for us to join him before we all enjoy the fullness of the inheritance of which he wrote. Oh, not that all those who will give themselves completely to Jesus will be called to physical martyrdom. But it is a sort of martyrdom to which we must all give ourselves, our lives, completely in faith and love To Christ in service to others, in kindness, in compassion, in generosity. But at the end of such a path, as I've just described, there is and there awaits the eternal weight of glory that no one can take away. You see, Jesus is giving you a choice right now, this minute, no matter how long you've lived, no matter how you've Lived. It doesn't matter. We've confessed that, and it's all gone. He's giving you a choice right now, this minute, for the rest of your life. Live for yourself or live for Him. That's the choice for you right now. Live for yourself or live for Him. And it's a choice with attendant outcomes. Lose your life or find it. Pursue this world's pleasures or enjoy the next world's rewards. Your choice. Your choice. But as you think about this, I ask you, I mentioned Jim Elliott a minute ago, contrast Elliott's life to one of his contemporaries, William Somerset, Mom, Willie was a novelist, a playwright, a short story writer in the 1930s, who was still very popular in the 1950s and 60s, even up to his death in 1965 at 91 years of age. Now, in total contrast to Jim Elliot, he was a man who lived for his own pleasures and his own comforts. In other words, while Jim Elliot was busy losing his life only to find it, Mahum was uh, doing just the opposite, trying desperately to find his life and losing it more and more every day. His nephew, Robin, visited his uncle, Willie, and this is what he wrote about the experience. I looked around the drawing room at the immensely valuable furniture and pictures and objects that Willie's success had enabled him to acquire. I remembered that the villa itself and the wonderful garden I could see through the windows, a fabulous setting on the edge of the Mediterranean, were worth 600,000 pounds, millions in American terms. Willie had 11 servants, including his cook Annette, who was the envy of all the other millionaires on the Riviera. He dined off silver plates, was waited on by Marius, his butler, and Henri, his footman. But it no longer meant anything to him. The following afternoon, I found Willie reclining on a sofa, peering through his spectacles at a Bible which had very large print. He looked horribly wizened, and his face was grim. I've been reading the Bible you gave me, and I've come across the quotation, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? I must tell you, my dear Robin, that the text used to hang opposite my bed when I was a child. Of course, it's a lot of bunk. Robert Mom goes on to describe an empty, bitter old man who repeatedly fell into shrieking terrors, crying, go away, I'm not ready, go away, I'm not dead yet, I'm not dead yet, I tell you. He was a man who gained the whole world and lost his own soul. Which man, I ask you, made the better bargain? Jim Elliott or Willie Ma? One gave what he could not keep to gain what he could not lose. And the other clung to what he could not keep and lost everything in the end. In other words, one lost his life in order to find it. And one seeking to find his life only lost it. May I assure you of this, brothers and sisters, with full confidence, will you mark these words? Nothing you sacrifice, no pleasure you withhold from yourself for the sake of the kingdom, no suffering you undergo for Jesus' sake and for the sake of following your Savior, will he fail to compensate to you and many, many, many times over while Everything that you try to cling to on earth will run like sand through your fingers, like water through a sieve. Every attempt on your part to find your life apart from Christ will lead to emptiness and ultimately death. But lose your life in Christ now and you will most certainly find it now and forever.